Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Right? But the goats on the left... Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. Welcome to Trinity Community Church. My name is Mike. I'm one of the elders here at Trinity Glad to be worshiping with you this morning. If you're visiting today, welcome, in particular for, for braving the snow. Well, there actually wasn't that much snow. I feel like there was a, a prediction last night, and then we all bunkered down, and then it was hardly anything. So, welcome to Chicago. We've been working through this long section of teaching that Jesus has been giving in, given, giving in the, the book of Matthew, and it's actually the final block of teaching in the book. So, after that, we begin his, his walk to the cross. So this is kind of the, the, the summing up of all of his teachings in the book of Matthew, aside from, from the institution of the Lord's Supper. This, this is the final block of teaching. And, and what, what the focus has been, it's all been about the return of Christ, or it's called sometimes the second advent or the second coming. First, what we saw back in November was that Jesus, he first described what his return would mean, what his return would mean. It would mean a huge reversal. It was going to be a sudden, climactic event where all the political powers of the world are suddenly overturned and Christ's rule is made visible over the whole world. So the, the, the return of Christ is sort of the end of the old world and the beginning of the new. The end of the old world and the beginning of the new. And Jesus said that we cannot know the timing of his return. But the timing of his return is not something that we really have access to. And so for those of us who, are, who, are, who identify as disciples of Christ, our job is just to be ready at all times, that at any moment Christ could return to finish human history. So in our, in our culture, there are sort of a lot of caricatures, especially when, when I start using terms like this is the end of the old world, like the end of the world sort of terms. There's lots of caricatures that, that, that come to mind. 
about what it means to live ready for Christ's return. In, in these caricatures, living ready always kind of means like somehow there's a storm shelter involved and there's like a stockpile of cans and bottled water. But we've seen that that's really not what Jesus means when he tells us to live ready. Now, obviously, if there's a giant crisis and you need to get into a storm shelter or stockpile imperishables, you ought to do that. But what Jesus' words, what he's saying is that you shouldn't expect that after that crisis, Jesus' return is going to come right on the heels of that. Jesus' return could happen now. It could happen during a crisis. It could happen after. The point is that it could happen in the next minute. And we could be still in the infancy of the church. Either, either, either one is a possibility, and that's what Jesus is, is teaching out of, the, out of the book of Matthew. He could come at any time with no warning. And so what he means by living ready is that we should just be obedient. That's sort of what, what he's been, been getting at. That, that we should be like servants who are at their post, because we know that the employer could return at any moment. So we're told to, to sort of be at our post, to be ready for the return of Christ, so to do what disciples are supposed to do, that's really what it, what it comes down to. And so we're going to end up using wisdom, we're, gonna, we're called to a life of faithfulness, and even a life of risk, that's what we sort of talked about last week. We do all these things so that we can remain obedient to Jesus, remain faithful to Jesus, and, and, and keep trusting, stay loyal in all things. So really, being ready is about discipleship. And so now Jesus is finally wrapping up this teaching. And he arrives at, like, I want to call it a final parable, but really this is it's not quite a parable. He uses sort of a, some metaphorical language to describe what he's doing. But really what he's, what he's doing here, here is he's, he's describing the, the judgment, the final judgment, which is going to re- follow after the heels of the return of Christ. And he's using very poetic language for it, but it's not quite a parable. Really he's trying to help us visualize what the judgment is really going to be all about. Now, I feel like anytime I bring up the word judgment, we sort of have to have a talk about it. And I think that's just because we've all sort of been enculturated by, by American society. We have sort of an aversion to the word judgment. So that to the point that many of us who have sort of grown up Christian, we're more or less used to the concept of God's judgment, we even sometimes have a sense of embarrassment about the doctrine of God's judgment. Whenever it comes up in the scriptures, we're like, man, God, can't you be like a little bit more PC? We start to think if someone asks me about this, I, I got to figure out some way to spin this so it doesn't sound as offensive. We become embarrassed of this teaching. But I think that really reveals the heart of this issue. I think our embarrassment, our sense of, of shame, or, or just, just our aversion to the concept of judgment, I think it reveals a lot about who we are. So I want to kind of camp on this just for a couple seconds before we get into, into the text. What is it really that offends us about judgment, about the judgment of God in, in particular? Because I don't think we, it's not like we, we think all judgment is bad, right? Clearly, as a culture, we think some judgments are good. So we, we don't want bad deeds to go unpunished. We want accountability for unjust businesses, unjust business practice. We want accountability for our leaders, at least the leaders on the other side. We want to see crimes of abuse, murder, theft to be punished. I'm being facetious, obviously, with the thing about the leaders. But we want to see crimes of abuse, murder, theft to be punished. And even just taking a glimpse at, at, at a typical Twitter feed reveals that we think justice is alive and well and ought to be operational. So what is it that we have against the judgment of God. 
think it must be that somehow the, the judgment that we see in this text, the judgment of God on all people, doesn't seem as just to us. We think there are some things that are reasonable to judge, and mainly those are the sorts of things that we do to harm someone else, right? So it's kind of one of those, like, the libertarian no-harm principle. We think God ought to abide by that. So we're all right with that kind of a judgment, the no-harm principle. But then we think, what right would a God have to judge my words or my sexual ethic, my use of time and money, my love for my neighbor, especially even what right does he have to demand my worship? We think God can judge us for who we are in the public sphere, so judge me for harming others, extortion, slander, murder, whatever. Judge me in the public sphere, but don't judge me in the private sphere. That part is mine. And so we end up saying that if God is good, he should only really hold me accountable to the part of my life that is already held accountable by the state. Does this make sense? It's like we we think that God ought to operate the same way the state does. He doesn't belong in our bedrooms. He doesn't belong in our living rooms. And to me, I think that's a really concerning way of thinking. And I want to kind of point out what it is that we're doing there. Basically, we're saying that God only has the right to judge the sorts of things I say a good God would judge. We have so elevated our individuality, my personal choices above everything else, that we get to this point where it's like, God's only going to judge what I say he ought to judge. What I feel is how things are. And then we never stop to question whether our feelings are really a good way to tell us how things ought to be. And it gets slippery pretty fast, because you end up saying things like, I could never believe in the God who judges. And that sounds really moral in our culture, in our situation, in our historical moment. It sounds very moral, very progressive, but it's not very logical. Because God's existence doesn't actually depend on whether you approve of his behavior or not. He is what he is. And we should, ultimately it comes down to this for me, I think. We should not, where do we get off assuming we actually have the moral high ground in this? I think we need to actually stop and ask ourselves whether God might actually love goodness more than we do. Maybe God loves goodness more than we do. Maybe he doesn't just hate public evils. Maybe he also hates the desires and dispositions of the heart that make those evils possible. And maybe he loves this world more than we do. And so when he talks about restoring the world, he doesn't just mean getting rid of murder. He's out to get rid of anger. That always is the seed of murder. Maybe he's not just out to get rid of sex trafficking. Maybe he's out to get rid of lust. Maybe it's not just about slander. Maybe he's out to get rid of that impulse inside of us where we want to control someone else's perception of the world. Maybe even just through a white lie. Maybe he's going to judge it all because he loves the world that much. Because he is out for true restoration. Restoration with no remainder. 
our heart is up for grabs. He can judge it. It's us who are small and petty in our loves. And so we get ticked when we read about judgment. So what I, what I see when I observe how we think about judgment, I, I just observe a lot of presumption, a lot of arrogance, when really what we might need to do is to take, back, take a step back and be humble. Are we willing to ask, could it be me that needs to change? Could it be my perspective that needs to change? Could it be my feelings that are not actually the most accurate measure of what's good and what's true? I want us to start there. Because if, if we're coming to this passage with any other attitude, I think we are going to miss it. We are going to miss what's here for us. And, and I think that there's a whole bunch of other passages in Scripture that we're going to miss too if we can't humble ourselves and question what we have been enculturated to believe. So I just want to start there. Let's jump into the text. So today I'm just going to basically walk through, you know, I'm not, there's no sort of uh, main points, I'm just going to sort of, in, through one sentence, describe what happens in the text, but just take the sentence a piece at a time. So Christ the King judges the blessed and the cursed by how they love the least. We're going to jump in with verses 31 to 33. Again, this is page 831 in the, the Bible under your chair. When the Son of Man comes in glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people, one from another, the way a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and he'll place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. So we'll stop there. This is one of the most important things to get out of this passage. And it's, it goes by so quickly that sometimes we miss it, but it's, I think it's one of the most sort of disruptive, incredible things in the entire passage. Jesus is talking about the final judgment, right? So this is the moment where, where God sums up all of human history, and he sort of reveals who are his people and who aren't. So in some ways, the final judgment is like a great revealing. At least that's a big part of what the final judgment is. It's a, a great reveal of these were all along the sheep, these were all along the goats. And so this was something that the Jews had expected for a long time, it was a common idea that God would judge the nations from his throne. That was sort of the, the poetic imagery used, that God would gather the nations to himself and there would be this massive judgment. And so you even see this coming up in the poetry in the scripture. So Psalm 9, very early poem, or early Hebrew poem, which is all about God on his throne judging the nations. So this was something that was very much in the mind of, of first century Jews. This would have been a familiar a familiar thing to them that Jesus is teaching on. You're like, okay, well, God judging the peoples of the earth, that makes sense. But Jesus has thrown in something very much not familiar to most first century Jews. What Jesus has, has, has thrown in is a, a giant twist, and it's a pretty significant one. Jesus says that on the throne of God, the, the one who's going to sit on that throne is the Son of Man. So Jesus' death was brought about by two groups, basically. So the Romans were the ones who had actually, that actually executed him. But he was handed over to the Romans by, the, by the, the leading religious authorities of the Jews. And so they had their own trial for him and everything. 
And at that trial, the, the charge that sort of got them to the point of like, all right, we're, we're going to hand him over to the Romans and try to stir something up so he gets killed. The charge that they brought against him was the charge of blasphemy. Okay, so blasphemy. And, and what blasphemy basically meant was it was when, when, when somebody sort of made themselves equal to God. That was actually like the language used at one point during his trial. It's like, we're going to charge him for blasphemy, for he makes himself equal with God. That was the charge that was brought against him, that Jesus had claimed some kind of divine status. And so you can stop and you start, you start to ask, like, well, where are they getting that, right? Because we, we've read through the book of Matthew. There's no just sort of like blunt quote from Jesus where he just says, I am God, quote unquote. Like, you never get that out of his mouth. And so where are they getting this idea that, that Jesus claims divine status for himself. Well, actually, I think there's quite a bit that Jesus said where he d- claimed divine status for himself, but where, where it comes up in this passage is in this tiny detail. Jesus always called himself the Son of Man, this figure from Hebrew prophecy. That was his preferred term to use for himself. And so now Jesus is talking about the final judgment, the one where God gets on his throne and judge, judges the nations, except now Jesus gets on the throne and judges the nations. So think about what he's claiming. He is saying that he stands in for God. Jesus is carrying out stuff God does. What Jesus says are God's words. What Jesus does are God's actions. What Jesus wills is what God wills. Jesus is claiming divine status for himself. It actually gets uh, even more clear when, when you see this next detail. So I'd like to throw a passage on the screen. There it is. So this is a, a passage from, from the book of Proverbs. So it's written in Hebrew poetry. This is from the book of Proverbs. And check out what it reads here. It says, Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord. So Jesus has set up the imagery of what the judgment is going to be like. He set it up around this passage. Except again, he throws in a major twist. Now he's saying, he's saying that he is the Lord that you lend to. Whoever, so he's basically, you could reread the proverb this way. You could say, whoever is generous to the poor lends to Jesus. Jesus' words all across the gospel are packed with little things like this. Little hidden ways of revealing his identity. He's peppered his teachings with these subtle but wildly audacious claims that he is the Lord in the flesh. We've got to remember, too, that, that he's speaking these things in the context of Jewish monotheism. It's like we have to internalize that. For a second. Because what that means is that people aren't just going to sort of leap on a bandwagon of some guy claiming divine status. That's just, it just wouldn't happen. And so that means that Jesus, if he's going to make these claims, would need to do something pretty substantial to back them up. Because really, if anybody believes him, much more, if anybody believes him and actually says, I believe Jesus, they're probably going to get stoned. Which, and I don't mean 
like, via cannabis. Like, I mean, first century lynching, right? If they say they believe Jesus about his divine status, they will get killed. Their lives are on the line. And yet here we see an entire community rise up claiming Jesus is the Son of God. It's the, the theology that later got articulated in, in, in the, the doctrine of the Trinity, how God is a complex being who exists in three persons. So something wild would need to take place to substantiate this claim, and I think that it's the resurrection. I, I think that you are hard-pressed to find a, a better way of explaining the launch of early Christianity in the, the context of Jewish monotheism. I think you're hard-pressed to find an explanation better than, or even plausible, another explanation other than the resurrection. And so this is why, as Christians, we don't just respect Jesus. As Christians, we don't just admire Jesus. And we don't just learn from Jesus. As Christians, we worship Jesus. And this has been the way it's been since the earliest community of the church came into existence. Jesus is God with us. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the forgiver of sins. The one who speaks with authority, the giver of living water. He's the giver of the Spirit, the one who has life in himself, the one through whom and for whom all things were made, the preeminent one, the one in whom all the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily. He is the head of all rule and authority and the head of his body, the church. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He is the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power, Alpha, Omega, beginning, end, First, last, worshipped by angels, foretold in the prophets, begotten of the Father, exalted in his ascension, the blessed God over all. Amen. And so I think the way that we need to internalize this, if we want to follow the way of Jesus, if we want to be disciples, is to realize that, that the first step to developing spiritually is not going to be a technique the first step to developing spiritually is not going to be a discipline. And those things are helpful and important. But the first step to developing spiritually is going to be to worship Jesus. To see him as the Son of Man seated on the throne of God. To be awed by him. To see him in, to see him in his greatness but then also to be bowled over by the fact that, that he did not count equality with God something to be exploited, but made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant, being found in the likeness of man, and humbling himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. When we internalize that, that the same Jesus who will sit on the throne was the Jesus who hung from the cross, it's hard not to worship. Christ the King. Christ the King will judge between the blessed and the cursed. So in this passage, we've got two groups of people. One is called the blessed, and the other is called the cursed. And each are said to sort of inherit something. Their lives are going to culminate in one thing or another. So the cursed go to eternal fire. The blessed are said to inherit the kingdom. I'm going to tackle the blessed first. So 
what does that mean, that, that the, blessed, the blessed are going to inherit the kingdom? What does that mean? So a little recap from the book of Matthew. When Jesus shows up on the scene in Galilee, he, he's said to, to be preaching the good news of the kingdom. He, he comes preaching the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. Gospel of the kingdom of heaven. And the, the Jews had been waiting for the kingdom of heaven for a long time. And when they said, you know, we're awaiting the kingdom of heaven, what they didn't mean, we're awaiting, we're, we're awaiting this moment where we will quote-unquote go up to heaven, Right? We're going to go up to heaven. That's, that's sort of how we sometimes think of the ultimate Christian hope. But the Jews, I don't think, would have used that language. They wouldn't have thought that what they were waiting for was to like leave their bodies and sort of solely exist as spirits. Hebrew Christian thought is not against the body. It's not against creation. It's not against physicality. In fact, it's the ultimate affirmation of all of those things. So no one was longing for this day when they would finally, quote-unquote, go up. They were awaiting the day when heaven would come down. They weren't waiting to go up. They were waiting for heaven to come down. The kingdom of heaven is the rule of God. It is the world according to God's way, as God wants it. Heaven is wherever God's reign is total. And so the ultimate hope of the scriptures is not some sort of like platonic contemplation of the forms. If you're familiar with Plato, it's not some sort of Victorian golden cloud city, certainly. How do you stand on a cloud? I'm not sure. Like the, how does the act of building roads on clouds, these are, these are important questions. So when I read those descriptions of heaven, or, and typically it's not reading, you're seeing them in, in art oftentimes. You know, it's hard to figure out why, like if that's what heaven is, why are the saints called blessed? Because it just seems crushingly boring, right? Like maybe I'm going to peer over and see what the cursed are up to if this is what blessing means, right? But thankfully that's not actually the teaching of the scriptures. Heaven is God's rule brought to earth at last. It is creation made new and people resurrected into it made new as well. And so the thing that Christians are looking forward to is not necessarily what comes immediately after death. Certainly, one of the very early, earliest Christians, one of the writers of Scripture, Paul, said that it is better to be with Christ than to, to be here, right? He's, so whatever follows immediately after death is certainly a good thing, but the terms that, that the scriptural writers use to describe it are very mysterious. They'll use phrases like, you go to be with God, with Christ, but there's not a lot of even metaphor necessarily to try to describe it because I'm not sure that we can conceptualize what it is to exist without a body. And, and, and that's not even what the ultimate hope is. The ultimate hope is, 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 you know, is located in this moment where God recreates all things and we are resurrected back into a new body. So Paul will, will talk about how it's not, I, I don't, you know, he talks about his body as like a tabernacle. I don't want the, the tabernacle to go away and for nothing to replace it. I want a more permanent tabernacle, right? So it, it's, it's embodied life. The real hope of Christians is living on the earth with the rule of heaven, resurrection, the restoration of the body, the restoration of all things. That's actually the goal. That's what God is up to. So one theologian, he has this kind of funny quip where he says the, the Christian hope isn't about life after death, it's about life after life after death. 
It's creation made new. Does this make sense? I know we've talked about this a little bit other times, but heaven, when you get there, will not be abstract. It is sand between your toes. It is fizz off the top of your soda. It is earth turned over by the spade. It is the rule of heaven and the stuff of earth married. It's shalom, perfect, flourishing peace. It is all of life lived in the perfect presence of all of God. It is work, friendship, food, creativity, play, lived in harmony with our Creator and for His glory. That's the inheritance that Jesus is talking about. So it makes sense why those who receive it would be called blessed. There's another group in the passage as well, referred to as the cursed. And the destiny that Jesus says they're heading for is called the eternal fire. And so this is worth talking about a little bit as well. So I think most of our ideas, I think our ideas of hell originate more in Dante than the Bible, more in Looney Tunes, where it's like there's Bugs Bunny and he's dressed with like horns and there's fire everywhere. And it's like a subterranean fire dungeon. I think most of our images of hell come from Looney Tunes or Dante, right? Like, or, you know, so I think those, that's where a lot of, and so we think like, oh, that's what hell is. But but what's interesting is that hell in the scriptures is never spoken of except through metaphor. Now hear me on this. That does not mean that hell isn't real. It means that whatever it is, it isn't something that we can conceptualize concretely. Right? We can't have like a specific thing in mind. I think it's a reality that kind of transcends what what we're familiar with. And so it's spoken of through metaphor. Jesus gets the idea across through metaphor. And the metaphors are different. So depending on which one he's deploying, that's getting at something different about hell. So sometimes it's called the eternal fire. Sometimes it's called the outer darkness. Sometimes, in fact, this is probably the the most frequent, Jesus will call it uh, the the word Gehenna. Gehenna. Whenever you see the word hell in the Gospels, it's typically translating the word Gehenna. Gehenna was actually a real place. Gehenna was a real place. It was a garbage dump outside the walls of Jerusalem. And it was always burning because there was always more waste being thrown on it. And so outside this one wall of Jerusalem was just this, like, pit of fire. And so Jesus, even the name hell is is a metaphor. He's referring to Gehenna. That Gehenna is the destiny of the cursed and so if hell is only spoken of in metaphor, then, then what is it that we can know about it? Aside from just the fact that it's not good. I think what we get when we take together all, all, all the, the descriptions of, of hell in the Bible, it becomes clear that hell is the natural end point of a life spent rejecting God's rule. It's the natural end point of a life spent rejecting God's rule. So hell completes a life that has rejected God. God is the source of all life. He is the source of all goodness. He is the source of all truth. He is the source of all unity. He is the source of all beauty. And so when we reject his reign, we reject everything that he is, and hell just sort of solidifies it. 
we will no longer be able to fool ourselves into thinking that there is any life apart from God. And yet, in Gehenna, we will never be able to stop searching for it either. Hell is insatiable hunger while you're always eating. Hell is insatiable thirst while always drinking. It is us turned infinitely inward on ourselves with no way out. It is the nausea of being sick of yourself but without the power to change. It is like holding a bucket under a tap that has no water to give you and yet you can never leave and try another tap. Hell is present with us now. Humans cooperate with it in our sin. And sometimes hell is obvious. We get glimpses of it in oppressive regimes. We get glimpses of it in sex trafficking and modern-day slavery. We get glimpses of it in the cold brutality of rape, in murder, in genocide, in addiction. Sometimes we glimpse hell in things that don't actually have anything to do with sin. We glimpse it in the far, far reaches of mental illness. We, we glimpse it in terminal illness. We, we, we glimpse it in miscarriage and stillbirth and infertility. Ultimately, the, the real emblem of hell is death itself. All of it. It is against the reign of God. And God's promise to creation is that he is going to expel it. In the words of, of one pastor, God's promise is that he is going to get the hell out of earth. The problem is, if hell is leaving, if hell is going to be expelled, if hell is going to be put out of the city like the garbage dump of Gehenna, then we might go with it. Because genocide and uh, abuse and sex trafficking and uh, lying and all these things, they don't just happen sort of abstracted from a human person. People do those things. People do those things. We partner up. Whenever we reject the reign of God, we partner up with hell itself. And so when God judges, we are the cursed if nothing changes. To be cursed means to find no place in God's kingdom. And as we believe as Christians, we believe that we are powerless to stop that destiny for ourselves outside of the incredible grace of God and the cross of Christ. That the thing that separates the blessed and the cursed comes ultimately down to, are they with Christ? Is their faith, is their trust, is their loyalty in the cross of Christ? Now here's the last question. How do you tell them apart? How should you be able to tell the blessed and the cursed apart? This is the last point. Christ the King judges the blessed and the cursed by how they loved the least. So Jesus uses this image to sort of help us visualize what the judgment will be like, and it's the image of separating sheep and goats. So we typically think of sheep as like, you know, totally white and goats are, tend to be sort of gray. And that wasn't necessarily the case in the first century. They actually looked a lot more alike. And so when you would have sort of a mixed group of sheep and goats, uh, if you were just sort of looking from a distance away, you probably wouldn't be able to tell them apart. 
right? You probably wouldn't be able to tell apart the, the sheep and the goats. They'd just sort of be coexisting, milling around. It's one big crowd. And so the shepherd, if you wanted to separate them, he would have to kind of do that himself. He would, he would have to get in there and, and, you know, you go here, you go here, separate the sheep and the goats. And so that's the image that, that Jesus is using to explain this. And that's, like we talked about, that's what sort of judgment is. In another parable, Jesus talks about a landowner separating wheat from weeds. In fact, I have a, a slide I really just included because I think it's a cool painting. It's uh, Jean-Francois Millet. Um, and so you see some folks in the background burning weeds and then folks up here sort of gathering up the wheat to take into um, the barn. In this, in this parable, what, what happens is the, the landowner goes out and he plants wheat and then he goes to sleep that night, and, and all the servants go to sleep. And then an enemy comes in and plants a, a kind of weed that is sometimes called tares. And it looks strikingly like wheat. I mean, until the harvest, you can't tell the difference between wheat and tares. And so the, the landowner wakes up, and somehow he, he realizes that the, the wheat has been polluted with, with weeds as well. And so his servants say, well, should we pull them up? And he says, no, 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 don't do that. Wait until the time is complete. Wait until the harvest then we'll, we'll, we'll bring them all in, we'll harvest everything, and we'll separate the wheat from the tares. The wheat will go into the barn and the tares to the fire. So this is a, 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 an image that Jesus has used before when it comes to judgment. He's, he's returning to the idea. And the idea is that you can't exactly tell God's people just by looking at them. So like when you give Jesus your trust, when you give him your loyalty, there's nothing like visibly about you that, that changes, right? There's not like a halo <laughs> that just like, appears over your head, right? There's, there, so you can't, you can't tell by just looking at somebody if their trust and their loyalty is really in Jesus, and you cur- certainly can't tell whether they, ha- they have endured to the end since they're not, they're not at the end. So there's no obvious physical sign, right? You can't, can't just tell them apart. So how will Jesus tell them apart? What does Jesus look to as evidence of who's his and who's not? And it turns out that the evidence of discipleship is not theological knowledge. However important theology is, you will never hear me trash theology. You'll never hear me trash theological education. Theology is hugely important, but it's not the sign that you're a disciple. Knowledge is not the evidence of faith. And it turns out that the evidence of faith is not even spiritual practices. Fasting, uh, you know, sort of resting, praying, reading scripture, However important those things are, and they are important. And the evidence of faith is certainly not how successful or well-known or influential or connected someone is. The evidence of faith is certainly not how close I feel to Jesus. The evidence of faith comes down to the most concrete thing possible. Self-giving love. Not even feelings of love, but actual, real, concrete acts of love for those who need it. That's how Jesus tells the sheep from the goats. And I want to emphasize this point, that the whole idea is not that God's people make themselves sheep and goats by their works, by by their acts of love. The, the, The whole metaphor that Jesus is using is that these acts of love are the evidence that that they're sheep or that they're goats. It is the evidence. The love is the evidence of who they are, but not what makes them who they are. The idea is that if you truly have faith in Jesus, you inevitably will love. 
and faith at the end of the day, it means trusting in Jesus, trusting in his cross. It means loyalty to Jesus. That's what faith amounts to, trust and loyalty. If you have, if you have faith in Christ, then it just inevitably will start to sort of boil over into, into these concrete acts of love. And this is consistent throughout the New Testament. Paul says that his mission is compelled by love for Jesus and love from Jesus. John records that Jesus' disciples will be known by their love. He says elsewhere that we can't honestly claim to love God if we hate our brothers and sisters because receiving God's love would change us if we've really internalized it. We learn that we love because God first loved us. Ultimately, we become who we are because of who Christ was for us. He came and identified with us. He gave himself in love to purchase our forgiveness. He gave himself in a concrete act of love to clear the moral debt we have toward God. And he gives us new life in his resurrection. He does it all so that we might be made into the sort of people who will fit in the kingdom of God that we might be restored to God and to our purpose. What's amazing to me about this passage is that the sheep and the, both, and the goats both, they, they don't even realize what it is that they're doing to Christ. That's one of the most fascinating things about this to me. The sheep, they didn't see some sort of mysterious vision in the face of those in need, right? It's like, oh man, I actually see Jesus right there. I'm going to help that person. They didn't, they, they didn't think that way. They just sort of acted They were just trying to be obedient, learn the way of Jesus, and how Jesus reveals to them that somehow, mysteriously, he was the recipient of their love. And the same goes for the cursed. They they kind of sound like a lot of us Americans, right? Like, what harm did I do anyone? What harm certainly did I do to God by my lifestyle? What does Jesus have to do with how I live my life? But now he says that any time we neglect those in need, somehow, mysteriously, Jesus is the victim. We can't abstract our faith. Do you know what I mean by that? We, we can't make it into just some sort of disconnected principles and special knowledge. Following Jesus is not just about a set of principles. It is a way. That doesn't mean we're saved through works. We aren't. We're saved by faith. But faith is more than just agreeing to a set of principles. Demons do that. Faith is trust and loyalty to Jesus. And so Christianity doesn't come down to just a set of facts, though it's certainly not less. Ultimately, what separates a Christian from a demon is that the Christian is on the way. Christianity is the way of the king, lived out as a response of thankfulness for grace freely given. So I'd like to close with with a story of how this affected one man, a very famous writer, C.S. Lewis. Lewis became a Christian as an adult, um, already with very much an established career. He, he, and he, this idea of how the love of Christ compels him to love, he took that very seriously. He internalized that deeply. Christ had given all, and, and, and so, so would he. Um, so through his writings, Lewis made a fortune. I mean, he could have been very wealthy. He made a lot of money. The Narnia books alone were hugely popular, um, and that's leaving out the screw tape letters that were printed in The Guardian and the, the broadcast talks that made their way into mere Christianity, and he made a lot of money. But he made this decision early on in his faith that, 
you know, he had begun writing, and, and suddenly now he's like rich. And so he made this decision early on that as he gained more money, he wasn't going to change his standard of living. So he was just going to kind of keep on keeping on and not change his standard of living. He, he, and so that money ended up going to a number of different things. So um, one of the first things that it went to was um, his brother, Warren, was an alcoholic. Um, so a dude who had a lot of struggles in life. And so Lewis took him in. So Warren took a room in, in Lewis's house, and, and Lewis more or less provided for his brother uh, until his death. Um, so that was one of the just like concrete ways that, that he would use the funds. And then the rest of it, he, he set aside this thing called the Agape Fund, and it was um, a, a friend of his, Owen Barfield. Uh, Lewis was terrible at math, terrible with money. And so he, he entrusted all of his funds to a friend and just told the friend, like, this is how much I need to live on. Um, take whatever else and put it into the fund. And as soon as it was put into the fund, it got, dis- it got distributed to a number of different charities across the world. At the, at the end of it, of it all, Lewis was giving away two-thirds of his income. Two-thirds of his income. And that does, does not count what he was using to provide for Warren. This is what he said about, about charity. I think there's a slide for it. Yeah. Giving to the poor is an essential part of Christian morality. I don't believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, and amusement is up to the standard common for those with the same income as ours, we may be giving away too little. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. There ought to be things that we'd like to do but cannot do because our charitable expenditure excludes them. I don't think that you become that sort of a person through legalism. I think you become that sort of a person by internalizing that Christ the King, that Christ on the throne is the Christ who hung on the cross for you. I think that's where it begins. It's been a critique of Christians that they're often so heavenly-minded that they're of no earthly good. And I think that what Jesus shows us, what the life of C.S. Lewis shows us, and what the lives of many unsung, unreported heroes in everyday congregations like ours, what their lives have shown is that that is not true. Those who are heavenly-minded are often of the most earthly good. C.S. Lewis said as much himself in mere Christianity. If we have known the love of Christ, if our hearts are filled with the vision of him as the king who died, then we will be of great earthly good. Let's pray. I think that's all I have to say. Lord Jesus, when we read a passage like this, it's impossible to um, walk away feeling scot-free. We have not lived up to your way. So, Lord, if you were to remember iniquities, who would stand? Which one of us could stand? So, God, we pray that you would forgive us our our faults as we know that you will because of the cross of Christ. Purify us. Reveal to us ways in which we can express the rule of God, in which we can express thanks for your grace. We love you, Lord, and 
now, Lord, we, we move on to worship you. Because any confession of sins is, is ultimately going to end in the worship of God. Because you have forgiven sins on your cross. So, Lord, help us to worship now. Amen.